On this season, we'll be covering our vehicles of hysteria, how pop culture and the media shape our psychology and society, and how our national mythologies manipulate the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. They are the legends we've all heard, the stories we've all told. Don't alert the driver with a courtesy flash, because it could be a new gang member playing a deadly initiation game. But sure, they're going to be afraid of fires and drowning and strangers, but why do they have to live with this fear that somebody's going to chop them up and eat them? The caller is in the house. Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark was far more than a horror book series made for 8 to 12 year olds. Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark was a pilgrimage site of old and holy scrolls, something that scared and fascinated us kids in an almost ancient way. In the elementary school libraries of the mid-2000s, the wait time to check out a copy could be weeks, months, and anyone in possession of a copy became a darkly enchanting sage, a little bit divine, and of course, your new best friend. The uncanny art of Stephen Gamble was like nothing we had ever seen. The wispy, otherworldly, nightmarish ink drawings that are probably still seared into some of your memories today. But beyond the eerie invitation of this chilling cover art, the horror stories themselves waited matter-of-factly, told to us straight up by a folklorist named Alvin Schwartz. And many of those stories were drawn from popular American urban legends that had been going around for at least the last 50 years. The really interesting thing is that some of the stories in those books were stories that I'd already heard, ones that the teller told me had really happened to a friend of a friend, or maybe a friend of a friend of a friend. I recently found the copy that my parents mercifully bought me at the Scholastic Book Fair around 1995, the one with the horrific skull growing out of a field smoking a pipe, the first in the series, published in 1981. It's creased to shit and wrinkled and watermarked, and it was hidden under a stack of books, as if waiting for me like a buried revelation. And it was a revelation for me all those years ago, just as much an influence on American hysteria as anything else has ever been, coming years before my introduction to urban legends drunk uncle conspiracy theories. This episode, our season four finale, will be a little bit different than usual, a little meta, about my own long love affair with what are sometimes called contemporary myths and the scholars and artists who helped me understand that some of my favorite stories, some of the ones I couldn't help but pass on, were just too good or just too bad to be true. Now I would like to tell you my favorite legend from this book. So meet me out in the woods at midnight and take a seat on whatever boulder or log you can find around this roaring campfire. So one night a few years ago, like two towns over, my cousin's friend read all about it in the newspaper. This girl is babysitting, and it's like 9 p.m., and the kids are still up, and they're all watching TV together. And then, all of a sudden, the phone rings. The babysitter picks it up and says hello, and she hears what sounds like a man breathing. And then he bursts into this maniacal, strange laughter, and then hangs up. Of course, the babysitter is creeped out, but she kind of just shakes it off and keeps watching TV with the kids. 
then, about a half hour later, the phone rings again. She picks it up and says hello, and she hears the same man breathing. And then he laughs again and hangs up. So she's getting more freaked out, and the kids are also asking what's going on and who was it on the phone, and she just says it was some nutcase. And they keep watching TV. And then another half hour goes by, and she gets another call. And this time, the man says, just one more hour now, and laughs and hangs up. So at this point, the babysitter is getting a little freaked out. So she goes around and makes sure that all of the windows and doors are locked, and then sits back down with the kids and keeps watching TV. Then another call, and he says, just one half hour, and laughs and hangs up. So at this point, she's like, I'm going to call the operator and see if there's anything that she can do. So she does, and the operator tells her to call her back if she gets another call and she'll try to trace it. And sure enough, a half hour later, she gets another call, and it's him. And he says, very soon now, and laughs and hangs up. So she immediately calls the operator. And then the operator immediately calls her back. And she tells her, and she's all frantic, the call is coming from inside the house, from a phone upstairs. She says, just get out of the house, I've already phoned the police. So the babysitter gets the kids, and just as they're running outside, the upstairs door opens, and a man that they've never seen starts walking down the stairs toward them with a very strange smile on his face. And as they're standing in the driveway and he's getting closer, sirens are blaring and the police roll up and they stop him and arrest him. No, no, no. Hey, Chelsea, listen, sorry to interrupt, but I've got a better story than that. And this one actually happened. My sister's uh, old co-worker uh, told me this one. So they were driving in a car late at night and all of a sudden they noticed that there's this red pickup truck that keeps pulling up behind them with its high beams on, super bright crazy distracting and then they just turn them off and so she starts getting paranoid this person's in the back and they just keep flashing the high beams and shutting them back off again it's like they're following her harassing her or something so anyway she eventually turns she's on her way home and she decides to take a different route she's not going to take main roads so she starts pulling onto all of these like you know old industrial roads the kinds of roads that don't even really have names they're called like you know turn turn left onto road one that kind of a thing but the truck keeps following her. And again, it keeps flashing the high beams for a while and then just turning them right back off again. So she eventually gets home. The truck is still right behind her, pulls up behind her in her own driveway. And so she doesn't know who this person might be. They might be trying to kill her. Who knows? So she pulls into the driveway, you know, puts on the brake, runs out of the car, back into the house before the person can get to them. But the driver of the red truck steps out of the car just as she's getting in her front door and shouts after her, hey, lady, there's someone in your back seat. It turns out that the driver of the red pickup truck, every time they flash their high beams, it was because there was this guy in the back seat of the woman's car with an ax. And every time that they crept up behind her, the driver of the red truck would flash the high beams to get the guy to duck back down. They called the police and they found the guy hiding just behind the driver's seat. How about that? All right, you can get back to your show, I guess. Sorry. If you haven't heard these stories before in one form or another, maybe you'll remember the one about the spider bite on the cheek of the girl that grew into a boil and burst into a swarm of black spiders from the eggs that had been laid in her wound. And I feel you'll definitely remember the story of the couple making out on Lover's Lane, only to barely escape a one-handed maniac, his hook found hanging from the door handle of the car. Parents and teachers in a Seattle suburb will vote next week on a plan to ban three books from an elementary school library. Those who want to get rid of the books say they're just too gruesome for young readers. Debate broke out here over death, the devil, and dismemberment, all topics stemming from three thin books of folklore called The Scary Stories by Alvin Schwartz. Sure, they're going to be afraid of fires and drowning and strangers, but why do they have to live with this fear that somebody's going to chop them up and eat them? 
pearl-clutching parents and horrible organizations like Concerned Women for America would continue to try to take away everything that we love, causing the scary stories to tell in the dark book series to become the most challenged for library inclusion from 1990 all the way to 1999. But I'm willing to bet my bottom dollar that these same outraged parents of the 1990s were passing on far more frightening urban legends about gang initiation murder rituals, about Halloween candy poisoners, about temporary tattoos of cartoon characters soaked in acid, about dogs choking on severed fingers, about men lying under women's cars at the mall waiting to slice their Achilles heel and steal their purse. Remember that one? And as we know, Adult urban legends definitely still exist, and they burn across social media as if they're verifiable facts and are often picked up by the local news. Let's listen. Now, a post says that a woman came out of a store after shopping to find zip ties around her windshield wipers. It goes on to say that human traffickers kidnap people while they're trying to get the zip ties off. A Facebook post calling out a problem on Snapchat is quickly gaining attention. The post claiming random accounts are adding girls on Snapchat for sex trafficking. Now, the most common claim is that an anonymous text message many report receiving is actually linked to a sex trafficking site that puts a tracker on your phone. The woman and her children were trick-or-treating around here, and when her daughter started to tear into her candy, she says she found a small metal blade. Users start communicating with Momo on Facebook or WhatsApp. They're given a series of tasks to finally meet the Momo. The Momo intimidates and threatens those who don't follow its instructions. And the final challenge can be anywhere from harming to killing yourself. It's starting in junior high, and they're very popular now. They're oral sex parties oh in which each girl is given a different color lipstick and the boys go around and receive oral sex from all the girls with the different lipsticks. So then they end up with rings of lipstick around their penis and the guy with the most rainbow colors on his penis wins. None of these are true, by the way. They've all been debunked and labeled as contemporary myths. But if it weren't for one man and all the scholars that came before and after him, I have to wonder how much more difficult it would be now to identify them. Another landmark book in the study of urban legends came out the very same year as the first Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. It's called The Vanishing Hitchhiker, and it's by one of my heroes, Jan Harold Brunvund, who was also a major influence on Alvin Schwartz's work. This book was not a straight retelling of each of these myths, as Alvin's was, but instead an investigation into their origins, their themes, and their history. In order to understand the phenomenon of urban legends as a whole, Jan would work with his folklore students to collect both published and private accounts through conversations and letters written in. What Jan and his students were able to produce was a kind of compendium of contemporary legends. And then he started pumping out the hits, books that proved to be far more popular than would have been expected, leading some academics to critique his work as too pop and not academic enough, which is so typical. But this accessible writing would grant him the honorable nickname of Mr. Urban Legend and would garner him talk show appearances, including a reoccurring spot on The David Letterman Show. He would be dubbed by one critic, quote, the legend scholar with the greatest influence on 20th century media. They are the legends we've all heard, the stories we've all told, the tales we've all listened to. But just because it never happened doesn't mean it never will. Though I wasn't familiar with Jan Brunvan's work as a kid, his collected myths would help inspire one of my favorite horror movies of all time, the 1998 college slasher 
urban legend, written by Silvio Horta and directed by Jamie Blanks. It was a typical meta-horror film of the time, addressing urban legends in a similar manner to how Scream addressed the archetypal slasher with a dash of self-aware satire. It's a campy romp through all the greatest hits, Pop Rocks and Pepsi exploding your stomach, the killer in the back seat, the roommate's death, the boyfriend's death, the kidney heist, and the headlight gang initiation ritual. In the movie, the trendy young cast, including Jared Leto, Joshua Jackson, and Tara Reid, what a joy, are attending a college folklore course taught by Robert England, aka the original Freddy Krueger, who gives dramatic and passionate lectures on the rich topic of urban legends, debunking all the tales the students long held as morbid fact. Oh, captain, my captain. But then these gruesome myths actually start to happen in real life. And as our protagonist says, quote, it's like someone out there is taking all these stories and making them reality. This movie was the first time I really got it that I understood urban legends, that I understood why some of the tales in Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark were so familiar. But there was another one that I had heard that was not accounted for in either the books or the movie, a mystery that sounded too good to be true, one that remained unexplained. That is, until now. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never frozen, ready to eat gourmet meals that are chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. And now back to the show. When I was growing up, my mom told me a sensational story, one that had allegedly happened in her East Coast town when she was 10 years old. And so I asked her to tell us a little bit of that story as she remembers it. I remember it being 1972, and we were living in uh, Maryland at Heather Hill Apartments. And I had a good friend, her name may or may not have been Denise. And we used to walk to school. And one day we walked to school and I was gonna spend the night with her that night. And she said to me, have you heard about the bunny man? And she told me that he had murdered people, numerous people, and that he would dress in a bunny outfit and he would murder them with a hatchet. So we were freaked out 
and the whole school knew about it and they were all freaked out. So that night I spent the night with Denise and whoever her other friend was. And we went outside and played and you know, it was it was getting dark and it was we were scared to death, but we were also like thrilled at the possibility that there could be a bunny man sighting. And you know, that's all I remember, but it was a big topic of conversation at school for weeks and weeks and weeks. Around the same time, when he was a teenager in Fairfax County, Virginia, a historian and archivist named Brian A. Conley also heard the story of the bunny man while sitting around a campfire. It creeped him out enough to keep him out of the woods, but it went dormant in his imagination for almost 15 years until after college when he took a job at the Fairfax County Public Library. One day, a woman asked him to help her find information on two local murders in which children had apparently been hanged from a bridge by a hermit punishing them for trespassing. The last bit of information that she had was that the man had perhaps escaped from prison or escaped from an insane asylum and was always wearing what appeared to be a bunny suit. Brian immediately recalled the story of the bunny man that he'd been told when he was young, but he still figured it to just be a local boogeyman story meant to scare misbehaving children. He almost forgot about the rumors again, but in fact, he couldn't, because all through the 1990s, people were talking about this floppy-eared psychopath, about the county's alleged roster of missing children, about dead bodies hung from bridges and rabbits turned inside out. Fox even included the location in their primetime special that I'm certain I must have watched, Scariest Places on Earth, with a segment called Terror on the Bunny Man's Bridge. This bridge was a huge fixture in the story, and it's actually called the Colchester Overpass, the location of many supposed murders and the subsequent paranormal activity. The locals had become angry about it, as teens partied there in spray-painted profanities, tried to scare each other with pranks, and probably did what was assumed to be occult shit. The rural community would actually get the cops to set up a checkpoint before the bridge that Halloween, not allowing anyone to get near the site. And each person that tried to reach that bridge, and some came from the next state over brought along with them their own lurid lore, personalized versions of the story from their own research on early internet message boards. Some told of that escaped inmate or patient that was prowling the area, eating rabbits raw and then hanging their inside-out corpses from trees, and then eventually killing and hanging a local man from the tree, and then eventually several children from the bridge. Brian Conley, living in the heart of all of this, must have reached a curiosity tipping point and committed himself to the bunny man legend, and being the archivist he was, began digging up everything he could to find the source of the story. When he was young, the victims were at most two local kids, and now some claimed up to 32 murders could be traced to this bunny man. Then Brian found a website called Castle of Spirits in 1999, in which the author claimed that a group of patients from the local insane asylum had indeed broken out, and then one killed another, and then that killer became the bunny man, leading to the gruesome deaths of several local people, and this site was complete with names, dates, locations, and a dare to visit the Clifton Town Library, where all of this could apparently be verified. But not so, said Brian Conley, King of the Archives, and he easily debunked all of it. 
And then he and those who he was working with researched every murder they could find throughout the local area from 1872 all the way to 1973, when the legend first became well-established. They found no mention of bunnies or anything that meaningfully resembled the Bunny Man urban legend. And then that was it. The trail pretty much went cold. But then one day, he was casually looking at some collected accounts about the Bunny Man legend from the Maryland Folklore Archive. And he noticed that 1970 was when one student claimed that they had first heard the tale. And then, Eureka. The two incidents that most likely ignited the legend appeared to have happened in October 1970 in Burke, Virginia, 10 days apart, with actual reports of attacks or threats from a man wearing a bunny suit and wielding a hatchet. The first was an account actually printed by the Washington Post in the days before Halloween, titled Man in Bunny Suit Sought in Fairfax. It was about an Air Force cadet who claimed that he and his fiancée were parked along a rural road to visit an uncle when suddenly the front passenger side window was smashed by a man wearing a white bunny suit with long ears who yelled that they were on private property. And after they drove away, they found the implement used to attack them, a hatchet on the floor of their car. Allegedly, during police questioning, the fiancé of the cadet gave a different account. She said that the man wasn't wearing a bunny suit, but that he was wearing something that kind of looked like a pillowcase over his head, or possibly a white hood. The second report came from a security guard who confronted a man standing on the porch of a half-built home at a construction site, who, the guard said, was wearing a black, white, and gray bunny suit and was chopping at the railing with an axe, calling out, You are trespassing. If you come any closer, I'll chop your head off. As the local media, as well as the Washington Post, began spreading these stories, Headlines like Bunny Man Seen and Bunny Reports Are Multiplying alleged that in just a few weeks there had been over 50 sightings, and many said he was coming after children. This was right around the time when my mom began hearing the story. And decades later, the Bunny Man myth would still survive that thorough debunking work of Brian Conley. Excellent work, Brian. And by 2011, there would be a low-budget horror movie called Bunny Man. These sensational local legends exist in towns all over the country. They're relatively harmless, and some psychologists believe them to be beneficial, another way for young people to explore their real fears through myth-making. But of course, once the parents get their mitts on something we love, it gets fucked up real fast. Before the internet and social media, urban legends were often spread through faxes or photocopies of flyers. Fax lore, photocopy lore, or Xerox lore, as it was first coined in the late 70s by Michael J. Preston, many of the faxes were like the emails your older family members might send. Jokes, anecdotes, poems, cartoons, or chain letters that threaten you with death or some other terrible luck if you don't pass it on to ten of your friends. But just as often, these faxes, and eventually the emails that followed, were urban legends passed off as legitimate threats to the community. And the ones that spread the fastest and farthest can certainly tell us quite a bit about the mindset of America at the time. As a runoff of Reagan's War on Drugs, Clinton's continuation of the War on Crime put a spotlight on gangs, as they became a new source of American panic. 
And though the plethora of urban legends that surrounded gangs didn't explicitly state the perpetrator's race, we know what people were imagining when they heard it. And I know what I was imagining, what culture had told me to imagine, even at 10 years old. If you drive past a car with no headlights on, don't alert the driver with a courtesy flash, because it could be a new gang member playing a deadly initiation game, one that requires him to turn around and chase the Good Samaritan, to kill him, therefore completing their initiation. The flashing headlights gang initiation story has been around since at least the early 90s, and it felt very legitimate to parents, teachers, the local news, and kids too, and I heard it all the time, year after year. The only kernel of truth within this legend is likely related to a 1992 shooting that took place in Stockton, California. A passenger riding in a local school secretary's car signaled to a group of teenagers that their headlights were not on. Police would state that the teenagers thought the man was gesturing some kind of sign of disrespect and shot at the car. The shooters were not in a gang, and the shooting had nothing to do with any initiation ritual— It was just a senseless, heat-of-the-moment tragedy, and two teenagers were convicted of murder. As he added this new contemporary myth to his growing collection, Mr. Urban Legend Jan Brunvund understood that these stories did not, and could not, stand outside the confines of American culture and politics. In fact, they could sometimes express the worst parts of our own prejudice, and he shared those findings in his book, The Choking Doberman, published in 1984. Like most legends, The Choking Doberman exists in many different variations, but here's the most common telling. So this man has to leave his wife alone while he goes on a business trip. And he's nervous because there's been this rash of break-ins all over the area. So he gets a guard dog for her, a Doberman, to protect her from this maniac who's on the loose. And then the next night, she's coming home after doing some errands. And she opens the door to see the dog choking, like really choking on something. So she puts the dog in the car and drives to the vet right away. But when she gets home, there's an urgent message on her machine from the vet saying to get out of the house and that the police were on the way. It turned out that when they were able to get out what the dog was choking on, they found two bloody fingers totally bitten off in his throat. When the cops got there a couple minutes later, they found a man in the back room huddled and holding his hand and bleeding. And yes, it was that dangerous intruder that the husband had been worried about. This is a basic urban legend in pretty much every way, and Jan tracked the story back to 1981 when it was first printed in a newspaper column and also told on the radio. He found that although the polished versions in the media removed any mention of this next part, the majority of all the oral tellings or the letters he received described the fingers found in the dog's throat as black, explicitly. In another variation, recorded by folklore students in New Mexico in 1964, a series of local break-ins prompts a grown son to get his widowed mother a Doberman named Wagger as protection, one that he's been training to attack an intruder when you say, take him, Wagger. The very next night, when the woman was sitting in the living room, she heard the sound of a window opening, and two black fingers reached in as the man pulled himself into the room. The mother yelled, Take him, Wagger! And the dog attacked him as trained, ripping at the man's throat as he called out, Wagger! Wagger! This surprised her, but it was too late, and after he was dead, she discovered that it was actually her son who had blackened his hands and face to disguise himself in an attempt to steal valuables from his mother or to test the guard dog's training, 
thinking that in either case, he'd be able to call off the dog that he had trained while also making sure his description didn't match him at all. There's another type of urban legend that many of us have probably heard, one that tells of different Asian cultures using dog meat in their American restaurants. Stories that flare up in areas where there are upticks in immigration from specific countries. One study out of Stockton, California, found that the rumor spread most prolifically in 1980, the same year that the area saw a notable influx of Vietnamese, Laotian, and Cambodian refugees. The rumor said that dog and cat parts were being found in the garbage, Vietnamese people were trying to buy pets from Americans right off the street, some reported seeing cattails hanging out of the tops of pots in restaurant kitchens. That year, a bumper sticker was seen on a car riding around town that said, Save a dog, eat a refugee. These rumors have been debunked by both the sanitation department as well as local authorities many times in many different places. In a similar manner, we can look to the AIDS myths that we covered in our Gay Agenda episode. Rumors of gay men infecting innocent people with HIV by leaving bloody needles in movie theater seats, of bisexuals intentionally spreading the disease to straight people as revenge for some unknowable crime, and even, well, I'll let televangelist Pat Robertson take this one. You know I what mean, they do in uh, San Francisco, some of the gay community, they, they want to get people, so if they've got the stuff... They'll have a ring, you shake hands, and the ring's got a little thing where you cut your finger. Really? Yeah, really. I mean, it's that kind of vicious stuff, which would be the equivalent of murder. Yeah. Thanks, Pat. It's always a pleasure. Despite my growing knowledge about urban legends, I was still very gullible at 20 years old and wouldn't be introduced to Jan's in-depth work until years later. And so I was still easily duped by a juicy story. More after this. And now, back to the show. So, it's 2008, and I'm eating breakfast at a diner with a group of friends when I get a call from my mom, which I ignored. Sorry, Mom. And then I got an urgent text from her. So, of course, I assumed someone close to me was dead, so I hurried outside and braced myself for some terrible news. But not so. Instead, she had a story to tell. A wild one. One so absolutely shocking that she could not wait another moment to tell me all about it. It was a story that really happened to her hairdresser's friend, or maybe her hairdresser's friend of a friend of a friend, one who had recently been on a trip to Las Vegas with a few of her girlfriends. On the last night before their early flight home, they all went out to a club and had a few drinks. The woman started dancing with a handsome man, and they spent the evening flirting and making out until the man asked if she might want to come home with him. She definitely wanted to, but her friends gave her the eye and she went the responsible route, lest she miss her early morning flight. So they said their goodbyes and had another long kiss, and he wrote down his number, and then the woman went to bed, and then they flew home in the morning. But after a couple days, she started to develop this strange rash around her mouth that continued to get worse. Her doctor got her in right away and ran some tests and then sent her home. But just an hour later, the doctor called her back and when she returned to the hospital, two FBI agents were waiting for her. They told her that the rash on her mouth could only be caused by contact with decomposing human flesh. The woman, shocked, had no idea how this could have happened, and she racked her brain until she remembered the man from the club. She gave the agents his phone number, and they attained a warrant, and when the Las Vegas police searched his house, 
they found that he was indeed a serial killer and indeed a cannibal. And he almost certainly would have killed and eaten that woman had she chosen to go home with him. So my mom and I are floored, right? We are hook, lined, and sinkered with absolute, very unbecoming glee at this insane story. Are you sure, mom? Yes, she swore it was true. So I hung up the phone and marched off to my now holy mission. This was a story that must be heard right now, and it must be told right. So I sat down and rudely stopped all conversation at the table with my insistence that everybody listen to me right now. This is more important than anything you could possibly be talking about. And I told it. I mean, I really sold it. I told the shit out of that story. But when I was finished, something far more amazing happened. Something profound. Someone at the table said, I think something like that happened to someone my mom's friend knew a few years ago. And then click, freaking ding, ding, ding. There it was, writ large in lights on the marquee. A living, breathing, urban legend, right there, using me, little old me, as a divine conduit. Sure enough, I went on the debunking site Snopes later that day, and there it was, our story, all completely debunked. I was overjoyed. I'd watched the entire cycle play out in real time. It was thrilling. One of the main reasons, if not the main reason, that we love urban legends is that humans are biologically wired to love engaging stories, both hearing them and telling them. And in fact, we get a little flood of dopamine if it's all juicy enough. Not only that, but a 2010 study out of Princeton University found a neuroscientific connection between the storyteller and those who are listening to the story unfold. The study used 12 participants who listened to a 15-minute spicy, spicy story told by a graduate student off the cuff about the disaster that was her senior prom, complete with a fist fight. The researchers recorded the brainwaves of both the storyteller and her audience and discovered that the listener's brainwaves began to mirror the speaker's almost exactly, almost as one mind or within a mind meld as news outlets have often referred to these findings. This study just reinforces what we all experience implicitly, the superpower of a well-told story, and the intimate bond that a group wrapped with attention can share. Stories also keep us safe. We're actually wired to pay even closer attention to the scary stories, and we believe them more easily because, as hunter-gatherers, we had to believe in the risks that we were told by people from our community, lest we end up prey to a nearby predator or attacked by a rival group or poisoned by an unsafe plant. Our narratives determine everything humans think feel, and do, and we need them desperately to try to order the chaos of the universe, to understand life and death, to find a way to feel secure enough to go on living in a great, unknowable mystery. Because of this, there is a goldmine of fear inside all of us, and those who are kept in fear are always the easiest to exploit. When you control the stories that people believe, the stories that people then tell, you can control their very reality. You can become super fucking rich, powerful, and famous. And so, reality making is a flourishing market. Throughout this season, we've seen how public relations marketing is actually based in the manipulation of our deepest emotions through corporate psychotherapy that makes us buy shit we don't need. 
We've seen how sensational publications and shows make us believe that we'll be a victim at any time, and we've seen the harm that can come to innocent people that we designate as dangerous to try to protect ourselves. We've seen how religious and political myths have long made narcissistic people into gods, those who make groups from 10 to 100 million into true devotees while they turn everyone else into legendary blood-drinking demons. We've seen the elite progressive eugenics movement tell stories about utopia and about what kind of people deserve to make it there. We've seen how conservative televangelists have manufactured outrage to increase their political power and push a secret racist agenda. We've also seen how our Mickey Mouse history has sweetened the sins of our past. But most relevant to the end of our season, we've seen how people can get rich off of outrage by making up stories hand-tailored to keep us frightened and angry and ready for revenge against each other. Because the best way to keep and increase power is to make us all hate each other as much as humanly possible. There is so much money to be made in a war. The collateral damage of this greed has been enormous, catastrophic, with each new horror story of the last five years propped up by fantastical myth-making, by stories, by lies. Families and friendships have been torn apart through manufactured, irreconcilable differences in our very realities. They will use any group that they've designated as others as a point of outrage and fear to distract us as a sleight of hand so we won't see what their other hand is really doing, and instead we'll look at each other. The planter class did this way back in the 1600s when enslaved black people and white indentured servants realized the power they actually had against their exploiters when they joined together, and their allegiance grew strong. As the revolts began against the plantation owners, politicians began to spread urban legends and then conspiracy theories about evil, bloodthirsty black people and their secret plans against the whites. But most of all, they told the story of race. They made the white indentured servants feel superior, not by virtue of their class, but by virtue of the color of their skin. Different stories like this have been told about all our cultural others since the tales of children kidnapped by satanic indigenous strangers. They are brilliant, devastating lies that have always worked because we're all raised with these ugly stories to different degrees and they become a part of us. We're all raised with all kinds of untrue stories inherited from the people who raised us, who were themselves raised to believe untrue things, as were the people that raised them. Over the last few months of making this season, I've tried to remind myself continuously of who our American boogeymen really are. I've tried to remind myself that there's a difference between those who pass on these sensational stories that they actually genuinely believe to be true and those who exploit or even manufacture the lies for selfish reasons. Our media moguls and their talking heads, our rich politicians, our pop culture provocateurs, our slimy preachers, shadowy billionaires, and so on. Do I sound like a conspiracy theorist yet? But even our wealthy supervillains of today are still animated by the national stories of America, of superiority, of the American dream, of the urban legend, of the American prosperity gospel that tells them that they deserve it all and that the poor deserve poverty, too. They all die eventually, but the stories that gave them power still live on in the systemic problems that have been created and crafted over centuries. 
American hysteria has taught me again and again that the belief in conspiracy theories corresponds with a perceived feeling of powerlessness, and it gives the believer something simple to fight for, an often spiritual battle against evil in the name of some version of good, no matter how misguided it may be. It creates a structure, no matter how nefarious, and that can be comforting because it beats the alternative awareness of chaos. It makes you feel a part of something bigger, and it creates community around a shared goal. It also beats that overwhelming realization of the tragically complicated and gnarled mess that we have no concrete idea of how to fix. It was about five years ago when I first picked up a copy of Jan Brunvon's seminal investigation into urban legends. I was in New Orleans, and I have a very vivid memory of opening it for the first time in a hot tub after all the people I was staying with had gone to bed. As I dog-eared the pages and underlined passages, the paper began to wrinkle from the steam, and it quickly started to look like my copy of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. I knew that Jan's work was big, and this book lit up my blood like those scary stories did almost 20 years before. I had been slowly coming out of a lifelong issue of believing in fantastical stories far beyond my favorite urban legends. I was hanging out with their drunk uncle. As I've talked about, I have my own history of falling for embarrassing conspiracy theories in ways that are still hard to continue to admit. I understand believing the sensational, I understand the almost planetary pull of these stories, that fight for good, for some kind of revolution, to try to save everyone from the evil forces that hurt the world that I love. Though the mythology was different when I was a believer, I was ready for that clear-cut, simplistic, spiritual revolution. The truth is that I'm just lucky that I never went too far. But listen, I just as easily could have. Now, to be clear, everyone is responsible for the actions they take. But in the end, are we always responsible for the stories we believe? If I hadn't stumbled into the folkloric work of Alvin Schwartz and Jan Brunvand and Silvio Horta and Brian A. Conley, I don't know if I would have had the skills to one day leave it all behind, to trade one story of reality for another, to make the difficult choice to disbelieve. Of course, Every part of me wants to say that it is stories that will also be the thing that finally saves us. That one beautiful night, we will all sit down and share our uniquely tragic and redemptive life stories around some final campfire. That one day, we will truly hear the pain and love that animates each other with all the myths we were told tenderly debunked. I also want to say that one day we will get back to the people we love and that they will get back to us too. I want to say that through our stories, we will find that one mind, that mind meld that those scientists talked about, and that then we will finally understand. We will know what to do. But I won't sit here and pass on a story anymore when I don't know if it's true. And so now, all I can do is remind myself again that there is a difference between a legend and a lie. Just as our protagonist in Urban Legend said, it's like someone out there is taking all these stories and making them reality. 
There has always been a sadistic man with a hatchet in the back seat of America's car. No matter how many times any of us try to wash our high beams across him, he's always able to duck back down and out of sight. I hope that a day will come when we pull our beat-up pickup truck into the driveway behind the car, high beams blaring, revealing the hidden villain suddenly for all that he is, and revealing that the villains may not be who we think. We look out our curtains into the darkness for the madman, but the call is coming from inside the house, from our TVs and social media and radios, and yes, inside us all in the destructive stories that we have unknowingly carried on for centuries. Crafted lies grow in the make-up faces of news anchors and provocateurs and politicians until a thousand black spiders come pouring from their cheeks. It's their fingers coming through the cracks in our windows at night, but they'll paint them a different color so you think it's someone else. Each day, they will fill this candy apple America with a new razor blade. And then they'll tell you it was a dangerous neighbor down the block. They'll tell you that it's true. They'll tell you that it happened just like that. They will swear it did. This was American Hysteria's Season 4 Finale. Thank you all so much for your support throughout this unprecedented year. It continues to mean so much to our team, and it really keeps us going. Don't worry, we'll still be around this summer, giving you the strange and important new stories that we find, and potentially some things a little out of the box. There are also some exciting new projects we're hoping to have a little more time to work on. We'll definitely be keeping you in the loop there. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, whatever the gender-neutral term for Mr. Urban Legend is, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Sound design by our creative and precious Mr. Rod Rodriguez of Clear Camo Studios. Speaking of storytelling, you should certainly check out Rod's podcast, Military Matters. Our show is co-researched and written by the very thorough and thoughtful Riley Smith co-produced and edited by the very nuanced and astute Miranda Zickler. Make sure you head to Spotify to listen to Miranda's bright, beautiful, and fun new album, Shiny Little Corners, with her band Kawinka. That's K-U-I-N-K-A. And voice acting by the hilarious and very dedicated Will Rogers. Make sure you head over to Will's hilarious and spooky podcast, Guide to the Unknown, with another favorite of ours, Kristen Rogers Anderson. And thank you to my mom, Sally Smith, for her contribution to this episode and for all her help with the business side of things that continues to baffle me. And a very special thank you to Kate Hutchinson and to Lauren Passell. If you're a podcast obsessive, make sure you check out Lauren's podcast, The Newsletter, as well as the new app, Hark, where you can listen to and help curate clip moments of podcast genius. We would be so freaking lost without her. Our show is all brought to you by a one mind mind meld with these people that I love. We'll also still be giving you new content on Patreon as well. So come and join the community and we'll let you know what kind of new stuff will be going on there soon as well. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria or head to the link in our show notes. While we're taking this break, come and follow us on social media. We're always doing weird and dorky-ass stuff over there. Instagram at American Hysteria Podcast and Twitter at Amer Hysteria. And also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and head to our site, AmericanHysteria.com, to pick up some of our killer 
merch. So thanks, as always, for listening. I know hope can sometimes feel like an urban legend, but we have to believe in something, right? We have to pass some story on. I'm confident that your story includes small kindnesses that you've been passing on, even if you don't tell anyone about it. So thank you, and have a great day.